Well, we're almost done with our study of the seven churches of Revelation. Um, I'm actually going to be kind of sad to see see it be done, but uh, we've looked at six of the churches so far, Ephesus, Myrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, and Philadelphia. Ephesus was the church that had lost its first love. Smyrna was the suffering church that received no rebuke from Jesus. Pergamum was the compromising church. Thyatira was the tolerant church that tolerated sin and false teaching within itself. Sardis was the dead church. It looked, it looked promising from the outside, but was spiritually dead. And, and last week, Philadelphia. The Philadelphia was the faithful church. The only other church to receive no rebuke from Jesus. Today we come to the final letter, the final church that Jesus wrote to. And this may be the harshest letters of them all. Laodicea has the grim distinction of being the only church that Jesus has nothing good to say about anybody. He doesn't say anything good about anybody in this church. Unsparing condemnation. No redeeming qualities at all. This is a false, unredeemed, unregenerate church. There's no one there to encourage no one there to say, hold on, conquer, overcome to the end, stay faithful. It's none of that. This is, this is way past Sardis. Sardis was a dead church, had no testimony, but it still had a few believers there, but not here. There's no one Jesus commends here, no one he looks to and says, you there, Hold on. Persevere. This is the most threatening, rebuking letter yet, and it's also probably the most misunderstood letter, too. But hopefully we should clear that up a little bit later. So let's read Jesus' words to this church. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. Revelation chapter 3, 14 through 22. Open up your Bible. If you don't have one, it should be a pew Bible right in front of you. It's on page 1313 of the pew Bible. So let's read the Lord's words to this church. And to the angel of the church Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich. And white garments, so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve, to anoint your eyes, so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, as I've said before, you, you can't really understand these letters unless you understand the church in the city they were in, that they were written to. You need to understand the geography of the place, where it was, its location, and how, how it shaped its functions, the major industries, its economies, what made this city go. You need to understand the circumstances on the ground there, what was happening, what was life like for the people there, because Jesus' words speak directly, directly to those things. 
And that's why we've looked at these things each week. As we looked at each church, that's why I've taken the time to explain, talk about the city, what was happening there. It's more than just a history lesson. It's to help us to understand what Jesus is saying. And this week is no exception. Actually, it's probably, probably even more relevant to correctly understand this particular letter and the certain sections in it. So the city, the city of Laodicea was at the end of that circular postal road that all these churches had been built along. If we go back to the, the first slide there, you see that, those roads, that's, that was the postal route. It's how mail and everything would have, would have circulated in Asia Minor. And all of these churches were built on that postal road. You can see Laodicea is right there at the bottom. It was the southeasternmost of the seven churches. It was in the Lycus Valley, about 40 miles southeast of Philadelphia, about 100 miles east of Ephesus. It was located on top of a plateau that was several hundred feet high. It was one of a triad of, of cities in that particular part of the valley. It had two sister, church, sister cities that were nearby. Colossae was, was about 10 miles to the east, and Heropolis was about 6 miles north. And on a clear day, you could see both of those other cities from here. Right there, if you look across the valley to the other side, right there, that white, that is Heropolis. And you've heard me talk about Heropolis before, about the, the uh, geothermal springs, hot springs that were there, and uh, how people would, would travel from far and wide to, to come to that city to soak up the, the healing properties that was offered in those, in those hot springs. And uh, the calcium and the lime deposits from those, from those uh, uh, geothermal springs would as the water came to the surface and would run down the side of the mountain, uh, would evaporate, the water would evaporate, leave behind those, those deposits um, that you see there. That makes it so easy to see. Colossae, on the other hand, was built in the valley. And um, it was a little bit farther away. This is kind of sad to say, that, that's not Colossae. This is Colossae. That was probably one of the most disappointing parts of the trip. When we arrived at Colossae, all we found was a hill, a mound. Hasn't been excavated at all. There's just not really anything left there. Um, whatever is left is underneath that pile of dirt. Colossae was built along a, a mountain-fed stream. You can see the mountain in the background, and there was a stream that would run down the mountain past Colossae. Heropolis was built on top of those geothermal hot springs. But unfortunately, Laodicea didn't have either of those things. It had to pipe its water in via underground aqueducts. And that was actually one of the most amazing things to me when we came into uh, Laodicea, was to see the underground plumbing around the city. I mean, literally, just like we have, just like we have. They had a very sophisticated plumbing systems. I mean, everywhere you went, underneath, underneath the streets, there, were, there was drainage pipes. There was fresh water, hot water, cold water coming in. Um, this is inside uh, one of the buildings and you can see they, they opened up a section of the floor there, and, and uh, those are clay pipes. I mean, no different than what we've used for a long time, you know? I mean, now, sure, we use copper and plastic and everything, but, but very similar belled ends that came together, and they would cement them together. That's how they would carry water into this city. 
even into, even into the homes. Some of the, the wealthy homes had water piped right to them. So you could draw a bath or whatever you wanted right there, right inside your house. You didn't have to go to the well. You didn't have to go to a, a pool someplace. You could just turn on the tap right there. This was a, a sophisticated and wealthy city. That was partly due to its location. It was at the junction of two major trade routes. I, I showed you that on the map before. The east-west road from Ephesus on the coast that led to the Asia interior. And the, the north-south route from the, pat, the capital Pergamum, uh, Pergamum down, to the, down to the Mediterranean Sea. Both of those went through this city. So this helped us to become a very, very wealthy city. Its location also made it a center for banking. It was known for its banks. It had currency exchanges, lending and financing for for all the trade that would go through that area because it was on a a major trade route. So they had a lot of banks. It was famous for its soft black wool that was produced there. It was caused by the mineral content of the water there and became very, very sought after, this, this very soft black wool. And it was used for fine clothes, and, and it was woven into expensive carpets. I mean, it was, it was very well known. It was also an important center for medicine. It had a, a, an important medical school that was associated with Asclepius. Remember Asclepius uh, when we, we talked about before um, with Pergamum. And they had a school there that was part of Asclepius's um, medical schools. And it was famous for an eye salve that they had produced, that they had invented, that they had discovered. And so this salve was exported all over the Roman Gre- Greco, Greco-Roman world. And all three of those industries helped this become a very, 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 very wealthy city. How wealthy? Well, well, most large cities were lucky to have an outdoor theater, like Ephesus with a population of 100,000. They had one, and, and Pergamum. I've, I've showed you pictures of both of those. The one in, in Ephesus was very beautiful, and, and the one in Pergamum was the steepest, one of the largest in the area. But Laodicea had a population of about 40,000. They had not one, that's one of their outdoor theaters, but they had two. They had two theaters. This was a rich, and they weren't that far apart. I mean, you could walk to, from one to the next pretty, pretty quickly. This had not one, but two of these outdoor theaters. I mean, that was pretty, a pretty significant thing. If you go back to this other picture, I mean, the marble and the stone that it took to build one of those. They had two. Obviously, this one's not in quite as nice a shape there, but, but they had two. And then the Agora. The, the marketplace, we've talked about that in the other cities before, the Agora, the, the large outdoor marketplace, kind of like a, a flea market, but with, with built-in shops around the perimeter. Well, Laodicea had a large, large outdoor flea market, or Agora. Nice one. A lot of the other cities had those. But they also had an indoor one, too, an indoor marketplace. It was like the original mall, it was a, but a fancy one. So this is where you would go to, to find your, your Louis Vuitton and your Gucci and your Prada. You would, go, you would go to the indoor marketplace. That's where the really fancy stuff was. It's where you would go to get your, your fancy dye-free black wool coat. I already mentioned the sophisticated indoor plumbing. This was a a wealthy city, and you could get anything that you wanted there. The people that lived there were wealthy. 
The people that lived in this city were wealthy, and, and so they could buy it. Didn't matter. This was like Beverly Hills. Yeah, stuff was expensive, but the people that lived there, they had the means, right? They never needed anything. It was, it was if you want it, buy it. If you wanted it, just, just buy it. There were no price tags. I mean, if, if you have to ask, you can't afford it, right? This was a, a wealthy city. Remember a couple weeks ago, or I think it was last week, I talked about the earthquake, the earthquake that destroyed Philadelphia. Well, that earthquake that destroyed Philadelphia and Sardis also devastated Laodicea. The Roman government had something like FEMA that would, would pay, would help pay for things like that. They would come in, there was a natural disaster or something like that, and they would, they would help pay to rebuild the city. Philadelphia and, the, and Sardis, they, they took that help. Talked about them building a temple to, to, the, to the emperor as thanks for the help that they received. Well, Laodicea, they said, no thanks, no thanks, we got it, we got it, we don't need your help, we don't need your help. They were so wealthy that they paid to rebuild their city themselves. We don't need Rome's help, we don't need your money, we got it. We can take care of it. And so they paid to rebuild their own city by themselves. No financial aid. This was a, a wealthy, proud, and independent city. Now, of course, all of those things are going to come into play a little bit later here. What about the church? Well, there, there was a pretty large Jewish population here. How do we know that? Well, every year Jewish men over 21 were required to, to send half a shekel tax to the temple in Jerusalem. And they would bring it to the synagogue. They would all gather their money, half a shekel. They'd bring it to the synagogue, and they'd, they'd pool it all together. And, well, it wouldn't make sense to send, you know, this great big thing of, of half shekels. And so they would gather all that money, you know, like, like a lot of people do, VBS, and the kids bring in all the pennies, and then, you know, you're going to donate that money to the missionary or something. You, you take all those pennies, you, what do you do? You, you go to the bank. You turn in all the pennies, and then you get money. You get dollar bills or $20 bills or whatever, right? And then you send that. Well, they would do the same thing. They would gather all those shekels into the synagogue, and then, and then they would take that down to the bank. And then they would exchange it for gold, because gold would take up a lot less room, right? You could send somebody with that gold a whole lot easier than you could send somebody with all these bags of shekels. And so they would do this. But one time, a local governor forbade the Jews, he forbade them from sending that temple tax to Jerusalem because he needed the gold to stay in the city to, to support the currency, Right? Don't send all that gold away. I, we need it here in the city. Well, they did. They did it anyway, and, and then he confiscated it. With the amount that was seized, 30 pounds, 30 pounds of gold, they calculated there was at least 4,000 Jewish men who paid the temple tax at that time. 4,000 Jewish men over the age of 21. Then you add all the women and all the children. We're a lot of Jewish people here. So it probably would have been a pretty large church. It was with all the other churches, it was, it was a, a result of, of Paul's time in Ephesus. Epaphras founded the nearby Colossian church. And he may have helped found this one. You remember Epaphras from our time in Colossians. Archippus, Philemon's son, is thought to have been the pastor here. Remember our time in Colossians, he, it said at the end of Colossians, it says, Tell Archippus to see to it you fulfill the ministry you have received. So it's thought that Archippus was the pastor here at this, this church. But that's really about all we really know about this church, except, except what we read from the letter from Jesus. And what he writes is not good. What he writes is not good. 
So now that we know a little bit about the city and what's going on, we can better understand what he is actually saying to them, what he's actually saying to them. The way he speaks is he kind of speaks like a doctor that is evaluating a patient. And so we're going to break it down that way. We're going to look at the physician, the presenting symptom, the underlying disease, and then the only cure. So first, the physician. Like Philadelphia, Christ does not draw from John's vision of him from Revelation chapter 1. Remember the other churches he, he had drawn from that vision. But here... He introduces himself using three divine titles. The Amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of creation. As I pointed out each week, the way Christ introduces himself to each church is important. It speaks to the problems in the church and how they need to see him. The Amen. First, he introduces himself as the Amen. And this is a unique title that, to describe Jesus that is only found here. But it's reminiscent of Isaiah 65, 16, where God is twice called the God of truth. Isaiah 65, 16. So that he blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth. And he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten and are hidden from my eyes. Now the thing about that passage, in the original Hebrew, the word for truth there is amen. It's amen. I mean, it literally, it says, the God of amen. Amen is a, a transliteration of a Hebrew word meaning truth, affirmation of certainty, to be verified as true. If you have a, a Strong's concordance at home, you can look this up for yourself. It's number 543. Jot that down. 543. If you have a Strong's concordance, you can look it up. It'll also reference number 539. We still use that word this way today. If someone speaks a truth that we, we're in full agreement with, and we affirm, and we testify to the truth of what they're saying, right? If a pastor's really, really saying, saying something profound, what do we say? Amen, brother. Preach it, right? We're like, yes, I agree. That is true. I affirm what you're saying is true. Keep saying it. It's used throughout Scripture to affirm the truthfulness of, of a statement. Romans 16, 27. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Otherwise, he's saying truth. Truth. Only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Truth. That's what he's saying. It's awful often rendered verily, verily in the King James or truly in the ESV, the NIV, and the NASB when it's in a, a preceding a statement. When it precedes a statement, at the end of a statement, it says amen to verify that this is true, but if it's before, if it's used before the statement, it's, it's rendered as truly or verily. John 3, 3, Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. The King James, it says, verily, verily, I say unto you. In the original Hebrew, it would be, amen, amen, I say to you. So this is speaking of truth, confirming truth. And beyond that, there's 2 Corinthians 1.20. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. See, all God's promises and covenants are fulfilled and guaranteed in Christ. And he is the faithful and true witness. Christ also identifies himself as the faithful and true witness. Not only is Jesus the amen because of his work, but he's also, but also because everything he speaks is the truth. He is completely trustworthy, perfectly accurate, 
And his testimony is always reliable. Christ is certainly the amen because he is the God of truth incarnate. He is certainly a faithful and true witness. He says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. Right? John 14, 6. And then he says he's the beginning of God's creation. Now this, this does not mean, as some say, that he was a created being, the first one made. This means that he is the source, the origin of creation. Through his power, everything was created. John 1, 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So why this introduction? Why would Jesus introduce himself to this church this way? Because it seems that the same heresies that had invaded the nearby Colossian church had made their way to Laodicea. Remember our our study in Colossians? Remember the heresies that we talked about there? The early Gnosticism, the asceticism, the empty, empty philosophies that had led those Colossians astray? The belief that only the enlightened could know the truth? That Christ was just another created being that had attained deity. He had attained deity because he had grown in this hidden knowledge like they had. They were the smart ones. Those, those heresies had come and affected this church too. And that's not really surprising though because the other church, Colossians or Colossae, was, was only 10 miles away. So it's no surprise that those heresies made their way over here. That's why Paul closed Colossians by telling them to share their letter with the Laodiceans and then to, to read the Laodiceans' letter too. Colossians 1.15, Paul said, Christ was the firstborn over creation, for by him all things were created. And so Jesus, what Jesus is doing is he is going right after their heretical view of him. He is addressing head-on, head-on, their false view of who he is. They had bought into the same, same heresies that the Colossians had. And Jesus is not beating around the bush. He says, no, I am the truth. He says, you think you know the truth? But I, I am the truth. You think you've discovered the hidden meanings? I am the consummation of everything. Everything is fulfilled in me. Creation itself finds its source in me. See, they had created a heretical imitation Christ that they were following. But the real, authentic Christ was coming to evaluate their condition. They were deathly ill, and they had no idea, no clue. But he did. His eyes, like flaming fire, saw the truth of their condition. And the physician was going to tell them what was ailing them, presenting symptoms. Jesus says he sees what's going on. He says, I did the x-ray. I ran the tests. The results are in. I know your works. Verses 15 and 16. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now these, there's two often misquoted and and misunderstood passages in in this letter. And here we come across one of them. The lukewarm Christian. Many believe this. this refers to the spiritual temperature of people. They take cold, they make that a negative, a bad thing, a cold, ungrowing, dead faith, or, or maybe no faith at all. Oh, you're, you're a cold Christian. And they take hot as positive, a good thing. That's what we should be. We should, we should be on fire for Jesus, right? How many, how many rallies have you heard those words? Don't be a lukewarm Christian. Got to be hot. Be on fire for him, right? Make, we make cold, bad, and hot good. Lukewarm is just right in the middle, kind of, we believe it. We're just, just not fired up. We're just coasting, 
Christianity, eh, I can take it or leave it. Going through the motions. Now, sure, there's some implications that we could draw from that. And I'm not going to say that, that you can't preach that message or say that message. I agree with the premise, the thought of that teaching. But that is not, that is not what Jesus is saying here. That is not what Jesus is saying here. First, first that interpretation, that interpretation of this passage would say something pretty incredible. I bet you've never stopped to think about. If you were, if you were to believe that that was what Jesus is saying, if you were to believe, would that you were either cold or hot? To believe that interpretation would be to say that Jesus would prefer to have cold, unbelieving people. He'd rather have cold, unbelieving people than a lukewarm, half-hearted believer. Like, pick a side. Pick a side. Either you're with me or you're against me. Just choose one side, right? Let me know whose side you're on. Well, that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. He already knows who's on his side. He already knows who are his. Why would he need us to pick a side? He already knows. It's just ridiculous. Second Peter 3, 9, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He wants everyone to come to him. He wants everyone to come to him. So this is not about being hot or cold, being on fire for Jesus or, or not. So what is Jesus actually saying here? The real meaning of this. As I said earlier, the true meaning is in the context. It's in the context. The reason that I've shared the information about each city, because the true meaning, the true meaning is found in that. It's found in the water supply. I mentioned this in the beginning. For as wealthy as a city as this was, for all its extravagance, the one thing that it did not have was a good water supply. For everything else, you could buy everything, but they didn't have good water. It had to bring its water in from several miles away through these underground pipes. That's how, that's how they would get their water. From several miles away, they would pipe it in these aqueducts. By the time it reached the city, it was foul. And it was dirty. It was tepid. It was lukewarm. It was lukewarm. Heropolis had the hot mineral springs that were sought after for their, their therapeutic healing, and the restoration, still used today, still a resort area that people flock to to enjoy those, those hot thermal springs for that therapeutic healing and the restoration. The cold, clear spring waters of Colossae, they were refreshing and satisfying. Both of them had qualities that made them useful and pleasing. Like a, a hot cup of cocoa on a, on a cold winter's day. Snuggle up with that, that nice hot cup of cocoa. Or a cold glass of lemonade on a, on a hot summer's night. It's refreshing. Laodicea didn't have either of those. Now imagine that cocoa or that lemonade, lukewarm, just ugh. Yuck. No wonder Jesus would want to spit them out, right? I mean, how would you like that? This lukewarm lemonade. But it actually goes beyond that. He actually says more than that. In the Hebrew, he says he will emesse. He says he will vomit. 
to vomit. The King James says that. I will vomit you out of my mouth. See, these waters in Laodicea piped in were high in minerals. The waters were, were high in minerals here. And as they traveled in these pipes, they would both deposit and pick up these, these calcareous deposits. That's the inside of one of the pipes. Pipes would be coated, would be choked off with these deposits. These minerals were said to be, make these waters to have an emetic effect. Minerals, as they would break down in the water, would cause the water to have an emetic effect. You say, well, what, what does that mean? What does emetic mean? Well, emetic means to vomit, to cause to vomit. Think of Ipecac, the syrup. You eat, take some, you know, you, you ingest some poison or something like that. You go to the hospital, what are they going to give you? They're going to give you that Ipecac, right? What's that going to do? It's going to make you throw up. It's going to make you vomit and get it out of your body, right? That's what an emetic is. It makes you sick. What's the spiritual significance of this? Quite simply, Jesus is saying, you make me sick. You make me sick. See, some churches just make the Lord sick. See, he was, he was angry with those that compromised. He was, he was disappointed with those that had lost, left their first love or, or had tolerated sin. But this church, this church just made him sick. Just take that thought through church history down to today. Church is full of people who have a wrong view of Christ. And therefore, they're unconverted. They're unsaved. They are obnoxious to heaven. They nauseate him. They make him sick. They are lukewarm. They're good for nothing. They, they neither bring healing and restoration nor refreshment to lost souls. They're sickening. They're sickening to him. And the, and the reason is the underlying disease. It says, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. Here's the reason their illness makes him sick. They're blind to their true condition. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. They had no idea how sick they really were. But he tells them. The underlying disease is affluence, affluence and self-sufficiency. Laodicea was a wealthy city. And apparently the church was also a wealthy church. And they probably took this as a sign of God's blessing on them. Being in a wealthy area would have naturally brought in wealthy people. And those wealthy people would have contributed to the church, right? Being wealthy, they were, they were used to the finer things. And so they would make sure the church had all it needed. They would make sure that the church was comfortable for them. I mean, they're used to living in luxury. They're going to make sure the church they go to offers some of that luxury too, right? And be reflective of their status. I mean, a rich guy doesn't go to a poor church. I mean, how would that look, right? They would have made sure that the place looked really nice. It had all the best. There'd be no leaky roof, no peeling paint here. Old faded carpet? I don't think so. Finest wool carpets and probably marble tile. Need to add a children's ring? No problem. How much do you need? I'll write the check. 
No, we don't need to get a loan or anything. No, we got, we got more than enough money sitting in the bank drawing interest. We don't need anything. We're flush, man. We're good. Like the city when the earthquake came. We don't need your money, Rome. We got it. We got it all by ourselves. We're good. We have a nice building. We've got lots of programs. The pews are full. So is the offering basket. We got it going on. Don't worry about us, Jesus. Don't worry about us. We're good. You know what? Go help, go help that little country church. Go help that poor country church. Now they, they could really use your help. Us, we don't need anything. We're good. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, you know what? I think maybe we'll write a book or a manual to show other churches what we did to be so successful. Maybe we'll 10 strategies to double your church membership. Now, in case you think I'm making that up, I get emails every week with titles like that. See how we doubled our church membership in 30 days. Maybe we'll start, maybe we'll char, we'll start a church affiliation network. They can, they can sign up and they can be mentored by us. They can become an affiliate. They can put it on their website and everything. We must be doing God's work. I mean, I mean everyone, everyone wants to be here. So, no, Jesus, we're good. We don't need anything. That, that is the worst state a person can be in. That is the worst state that a church could be in. To believe they need nothing. It would be better to be an atheist. To be completely ignorant of the church and the gospel. Because you could come to know the truth. That you are a hopeless wretch. That your only hope is in Christ. But to be this, to have created a false Christ that fits your agenda and then trust in your false sense of success and security that you created, you have no idea how affluence and self-sufficiency has blinded you. Churches like this will sing. They'll sing about how reckless God was as He pursued them. How narcissistic. How narcissistic to think the God of the universe abandoned everything, His holiness, and was reckless because you were so desirable. How narcissistic are you to believe that? To sing that? The attitude had made them blind to their own true condition. They were really wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. Instead, they should have been seen, oh, Oh, how I need thee. Every, every hour, I need thee. They didn't realize how truly lost they were. They, and maybe even some looking on, may have envied them. But Jesus, and even those that know the truth of who he really is, can see there is nothing to be admired here. Their true condition is actually pitiable. And there is only really one cure for it. Verses 18 and 20. 
I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. To those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. There is only one cure for the horrible condition this church is in. Now the Lord Jesus could have have instantly judged and destroyed this church filled with unredeemed hypocrites. He could have just wiped them off the face of the earth. Instead, he graciously offered them genuine salvation. And his threefold approach played on the three key features the city was most proud and known for. Its wealth, its wool industry, and its eye salve. Now, salvation can't be bought. Jesus is not saying that salvation can be bought by money or, or by works. The buying he is speaking of is like that of the offer in Isaiah 55.1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. They don't have to do anything. They don't have anything to offer except their wretched, lost condition. He freely offers it to those who repent and believe. But, but he is the only place that you can get it. He has an exclusive marketplace. You can't get a cheap knockoff. Gold refined by fire. These Laodiceans thought they were rich. But they actually had fool's gold in their bank accounts. 1 Timothy 6.10 For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. See, they needed his gold that was refined by fire, free of impurities, representing the the priceless riches of true salvation. Peter wrote of a faith more precious than gold in 1 Peter 1.7. Christ offered them a pure, true salvation that would bring them into a real relationship with him. White garments to, to cover their shame. The city was proud of its expensive black wool that was was famous all over. But like the emperor in the story, the emperor's new clothes, remember that story? They believed they were clothed in splendor. They were really naked. They were really naked. To be naked meant to be defeated, humiliated. Now, they could go to either of the two agoras and they could buy fine woolen garments, but that would not meet their real need. They needed needed the white garments of Christ's righteousness and grace. Only that, only that could cover their sins, their guilt, their shame that was on full display before the Lord. He saw their nakedness. And salve to anoint your eyes. Laodicea prided itself on his eye salve that, that healed many eye problems. They, they prided themselves on their allegedly superior spiritual knowledge too. But they were in fact spiritually blind. Like all unregenerate people, the Laodiceans desperately needed Christ's eye salve to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Acts twenty six eighteen. They needed. They needed what he had. So they could see truth. 
To those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Christ wants all to come to him. This free gift of salvation is available to all who believe, Acts 10.43 tells us. So be zealous, repent, mourn over your sin and turn from it. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, although this, this verse has been used in countless evangelistic tracts and messages to depict Christ standing at the, door, at the door of a sinner's heart, the true meaning is, is much broader than that. It's much broader than that. The context is actually Christ speaking to an entire church. To an entire church. Remember, this letter is to a church. Christ was outside. Christ was outside of this apostate church. And he wanted to come in. The people inside the church needed to repent and accept Christ. Some, most, probably all for the very first time. Remember, he said he was outside. He was standing outside. And he found no redeeming people to encourage at the beginning of his letter. So that meant there were probably no true Christians inside this church. He was outside. There was no one there for him to encourage All were deceived. The Laodicean church was complacent, rich, self-satisfied. But they didn't have Christ's presence among them. The pleasures of this world, money, security, material possessions, can be dangerous because they blind people to their need for Christ. Jesus stands at the door, the church, knocking. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He is standing at the door of his church, wanting to come in. He says, if anyone hears my voice, if one person, if one person would answer, that church, opened the door by repentance and faith, then Jesus could enter into that church through them. Then he could come in and eat with him. This church could know true fellowship with the risen Lord. All it takes is one true Christian, and then Christ is there. says, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I conquered and sat at my Father's throne. As Christ was victorious over sin and death and is at home in heaven, one day true believers will have that victory and assurance too. Some churches and believers believe that material wealth is a sign. God's spiritual blessings, some Sometimes it is. Often it is not. Laodicea had grown wealthy just as their city had. Wealth, luxury, and ease can make people confident, smug, satisfied. This church began to trust in their wealth and success. And over time, they allowed that trust to squeeze out their dependence on God. Neither healing nor refreshing gospel truth was there. The Laodicean church was lukewarm. It was disgusting and repugnant. They made the Lord sick. 
Same is true of any church or any person that denies him and, and trusts in themselves and their success. No matter how much you possess, how much money you make, you have nothing. You have nothing if you don't have a relationship with Christ. And that's the message to the apostates, the liberals, the Bible deniers, those who think they have an advanced knowledge, those who are trusting in themselves, their money, or, or their position. You don't know your true condition. You are poor. You are blind. You are naked. But Christ, in His grace, offers salvation to anyone who will answer. Anyone who will answer. And this offers the same, whether it's a whole church or one individual. Jesus stands at the door and knocks. Will you let him in? Will you let him in? you have, if you have already, are you sharing the healing grace of the gospel? Are you sharing the refreshing peace that it offers? Are you living each day full reliance on Him? My prayer is that would be true of you the faith chapel always. Jesus stands outside of his church often, looking in, wanting to be let in to his church. He's not going to force himself in. He's not going to force himself into a church. He's not going to force himself into the heart of a believer. But he stands outside, heartbroken and sick. As he sees people and churches who claim his name, yet deny the faith. They don't really know them. They, they don't really know him. They have created a, a God in their image, an idol that they're serving, that they have set up, a God that's proud of them. And they have built themselves up, secure in their accomplishments trusting in themselves, no longer in need of a risen Savior. It's true of a church, and that's true of an individual too. If that is you, no that that makes the Lord sick. Repent. Believe. And allow Him to come in. And then He will fellowship with you. Amen? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before You. Again, humble. we read this letter, as we've read each of these letters, there's parts that we can recognize in ourselves. Lord Jesus, I pray that there, there is anyone here who's like the Laodiceans, who have denied you, have created a, a false Christ, and are relying on 
their own wealth or success or whatever else. They're relying on themselves and not you. I pray that they would hear you knocking. That they would open that door. That they would be able to find the pure gold. That they would be able to be clothed in your righteousness. That their eyes would be open to see truth. Father, I pray that for each individual. And Father, I pray for those churches who have succumbed to this. Lord, I pray that there would be at least one heart in those churches who would answer the door so that you could enter in and you could bring about change and revival in your church. Lord, we pray that you would help us to learn these lessons, to apply them to our lives. That you would receive the glory and the honor that you always deserve. We give you thanks for all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. We're going to close together by singing uh, 596 in the hymnal.